Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy Williams. Dr. Williams holds a Bachelor of Music Education from South Dakota State University, a Master of Music, Clarinet, and Woodwind Performance from the University of Missouri, and has her Doctorate of Musical Arts, Clarinet Performance, and Musicology from the University of Northern Colorado. She is a self-employed performer and educator, having taught hundreds of elite musicians, and has led an internationally recognized music ensemble. She has most recently taken her skills as a music educator into the business world, starting her own culture consultancy business. She is now a consultant and coach, teaching leaders to create positive and productive work environments, not through short-term strategies, but through systemic culture change in their organizations. Her mission is to inspire awareness and empowerment so that others can be agents of positive change in the world. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's so exciting to have you here. And I did ask before the podcast if it's okay to call you Nancy, because as we discussed, a lot of times women who work so hard to get their doctorates just find that people are dropping that doctor right off their name when they're talking. So I just made sure I asked if it's okay to address you as Nancy. And since we do know each other a little bit, you said it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's completely appropriate when you have that professional relationship with someone. Although I remember early on in my career, having being a student and having other professors address their colleagues by their first names in front of me. Yeah. Which in retrospect was like completely inappropriate, right? Yeah, completely inappropriate because you don't hear them doing that so much with some of the men. And I right. see panels too, where like all the people on the panel have a PhD, but yet the woman on the panel is suddenly, you know, somehow not addressed with the doctor before her name when everyone else is. Yeah. And, you know, it's not something we can really blame others for either because we're not the ones speaking up and saying and directing right. people. Right. You have to speak up. You have to be an advocate for yourself and for other women as well, which is part of what you do. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that. I think my first question for you is, I'm just so curious because your background is really all about music and music education and performance. And I guess during, most recently we talked about, you know, during the pandemic, you've really taken a huge career pivot But it's not such a strange pivot because you're still using a lot of what you've developed and learned through your music career. So how does being a performer and music teacher and educator translate into what you're doing now as a consultant in the business world? Well, to become a band director, which is what I started out my music career as with a music education degree, and I was a band director for six years. And I mean, that's really building leadership skills under fire. Because Mm -hmm. you're asking so much from these students and you're encouraging them to build something bigger than themselves, to leave their egos at bay and create this musical product and send it out into the world for no money at all. 
And most of the time, you know, sometimes they're not even getting full credit for some arts classes. And I had great mentors as well along this journey because I was taught by other music educators and other band directors that had gone on to get their doctorates and teach at university. And I didn't really realize how powerfully those skills could be applied to the business world until I was temping for corporations while I was setting up my private music studio. And I quickly became everyone's favorite temp. I would often get offered a full-time job within just the first day or two of temping. And so it made me realize how powerful those leadership skills were that I had developed in, in teamwork. And, and I could see while I was at some of these companies, some of the mistakes that upper management was making. And inside I'd be like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> like that's yeah. going to take away this feeling of cooperation and empowerment that your employees have now. Like this is not the right way to motivate people. So interesting. Well, I definitely want to learn more about how you address the idea of company culture and some of your advice for companies. But let's just back up a tiny bit. I want to hear you know, about your background. Did you grow up in music? Was that something you always wanted to pursue? I have an aunt who's a musician and she knew she wanted to be a musician from a very young age. Was that you too? Yes. It really helped me save myself and gave me a voice. I come from a very large family in which I was the youngest. And when I played, because I played so well early on, I really Mm -hmm. took to it quite easily and I practiced. And so I got really good really quickly and people listened when I played. And so that that was- That you were able to find your voice through music. Yes. From a young age. Yeah. And ultimately why I went into music education is because I wanted to inspire awareness and empowerment in my students, the way that music had given me those skills. Because to get better, you really have to like let go of your ego and look at things differently. And that's incredibly empowering. Now, I'm just curious, how does that translate from, because, you know, a musician, I think of a musician as someone who speaks through their music, but how does that translate into a verbal type of communication? Do you find that that's hard for musicians to do? I find that it is hard for musicians to do. And I do remember a point when that was difficult for me, but I got so that I had done it so often as a band director. And Mm -hmm. uh, actually my first job was very similar from the community that I came from, which was an incredibly small town. I think it's more of a village actually. (laughs) And so my first job was K through 12, voice and band and general music. K through 12, that's pretty broad. So were you doing all those ages? Yes. And all those things. (laughs) Yes. So you were working in the school systems there as a music educator. Mm -hmm. And then did you at some point decide to go freelance and do it on your own? I had always taught privately mm-hmm. when I, which is something that is really hard to do now since No Child Left Behind started in the school systems, became much more difficult to take students out of classes for individual lessons. And I realized that was one of the things I liked most was that individual time with students. And so at some point I decided that was the area that I wanted to go in because I liked that personal connection. And that's when I started temping to build that, to give me the income to be able to do that while I built my studio. 
And then at some time, I was I really wanted to get higher level students and teach at the university. And so that's why I went back to get my doctorate. Okay, got it. And so, and you also have performed with an ensemble. You, you led the ensemble, I understand. Yeah, I started a community clarinet choir, and we performed at, at an international convention, and were internationally recognized. I started arranging for them. That actually opened the door to composing, which is something I also do, and it really helped me in the area of public speaking to adults. Mm-hmm. It's different from public speaking to children. For it sure. is. It is. <laughs> and I started not making programs for people. Instead, I would verbally transmit what I wanted them to know and, and explain to them my personal connection to the music or the composer or, you know, whatever connection I had that made it interesting for me, why I had programmed it. And that was something I really came to enjoy. And during your time doing music as a teacher, but also as a performer, was it a very like, I assume that sometimes you were one of a few women or is that, is that a wrong assumption? Were there many no, women? Actually, this is really interesting because when you start out in music and when you are at an amateur status, you're very much surrounded by other women. And the higher you get up, the more patriarchal it is. And a lot of it actually can depend on what instrument you play. Clarinet is still incredibly patriarchal in the performing orchestras. And that's really started to change in the last couple of years. I had the chance to pursue jazz because I went to a smaller university. I was able to have a more well-rounded music career and really enjoyed the improvisation aspect of that and the just the whole jazz culture. And then I found after I left my studies and was performing in the real world that often I was the only woman in jazz bands. Wow. The only woman. Yes. And what was that like? Was the environment warm? So I, I spoke to another musician on the podcast, Geraldine Anello, and she's a Broadway musician. And she had this a similar experience where she was one of the very few, maybe the only one. But she said it was always like really warm, really welcoming. Everyone was so encouraging of her. What was your experience like? Well, <laughs> the irony is, is that I actually didn't notice Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. took someone else to say, wow, you're really brave. And I was like, <laughs> why do you say that? <laughs> and they're like, well, you're always the only woman. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but as I got older, I noticed that I was doing a lot of things to make my male colleagues feel comfortable around me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, what? Can you use an example? I I have to admit some things here. I would be rather immediately out of the gun, say something Mm -hmm, mm foul-mouthed. Or be like very um, joking. Or honestly, I would try to behave like a good old boy. And I wasn't doing it consciously. Right. I mean, I think it's a survival skill that a lot of us have to do at a certain point in our career because I don't know. It's like, it's like you, you're not really taught these things growing up, how to make yourself fit into an environment where you can be taken seriously for what you're doing and not who you are. Right. Well, and because I was so sensitive to culture, 
I was noticing like the tension in the rooms when I hadn't worked with them before, if it was a new group. And that was a way to diffuse that and make everyone feel more comfortable. And I wasn't thinking gender stereotypes. I was just thinking, oh, I'm the new person. And so I have to let everybody know I'm okay. But, but here's where it really like did not pay off. And later when I was talking to a colleague, and I can't remember if I had ever worked with him in a, in a jazz setting or not, but he told me how he always thought it was inappropriate for women to swear. Oh, okay. So he was holding you to a double standard and he admitted yeah. this to you. Yeah. Yeah. And he was of another generation, an older generation, mm-hmm. obviously didn't see it the wrong in saying that. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty plucky. And so I said, well, you know, it's really good that we've never sat close to each other in a jazz band and that you've never seen me play pinball. <laughs> now the pinball I get, but so I, I have to admit, I didn't know that classical musicians had foul mouths. <laughs> oh no, it's not. It's, this is a whole other different genre. Oh, jazz, jazz. jazz is totally jazz. different. Total, yeah. Totally different. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And you know, your career is all about culture and the culture of organizations. So to, for you to say that the culture of jazz is different from the culture of classical, I mean, this like plays right into what, everything you, that you're doing and teaching people. And It is. And actually, I have, since you've seen my bio, I actually have pivoted to a leadership and life coach because so many of the things I was working with with my clients had to do with their life as much as... Mm-hmm their work environment. Yeah. And, and I found that to build myself as a corporate leadership culture coaching consultant had been limiting me to people that could really use these leadership skills for their life. And honestly, I, I sat down one day and created my leadership method that I used um, in the corporate world. And I had never really like sat down and realized how I was creating cultures of success, how I was able to bring people to perform their best and be excited about being in the ensemble and bring themselves to another level. I had never like sat down and figured out how I'd done that before. And when I had that structure in front of me, I found myself in my own life when I had challenges being like, okay, what do I need here? And going through my system and figuring out kind of how to coach myself in my life and looking at my life as I had looked in my profession, which I'd never done before. I'd never been as intentional as like troubleshooting challenges and brainstorming ways to help myself as I had been in business and in music education. And so I wanted to share how transforming that had been for me and my clients with a larger audience. Okay, so this is really your transition then. You're talking about your transition really from the music world into creating your own consulting firm. Right. So I had, I, and when I pivoted, I didn't stop being a musician. I just mm-hmm. get to take the jobs and do the things that I want to do. Yeah. And I originally started out my first year as a culture consultant and coach. And then I just recently pivoted and into more, it's more of a title change than actually changing what I was doing. But I call myself a leadership and life coach now. 
Can you share a little bit about that? I mean, I know you've written a few pieces and I want to talk about each of those, but can you share a little bit about the types of people you're helping now? So it's not just corporations, it's individuals as well? Yeah, yeah. And I do still help people in leadership positions in corporations and businesses, but there's also a need for people to incorporate leadership skills into their personal life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Taking a walk through your journey, that this was the transitional period between, you know, your music career mm-hmm. and your coaching career or your, your really your entrepreneurial journey into starting your own consulting firm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just interested in like the types of people that oh, you were. Yeah, are yeah, yeah. yeah. So ultimately, overachieving women who are overwhelmed, who end up taking up the slack at work. Mm-hmm and who aren't very good at delegating and who have really strong work ethics that sometimes Mm -hmm. causes mindset issues regarding the fear of missing out, having to prove yourself, and sometimes even going as far as that coming from a place of imposter syndrome or lack of confidence. Yeah, it's interesting that you're talking about that you're helping high-achieving women I know you've written a guide called Three Ways to Beat Imposter Syndrome, and I would like to hear about that. And imposter syndrome, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with it by now. It's been around for, the concept has been around for three or four decades, I think. But it's sort of like a crisis in confidence that affects high-achieving women who don't give themselves you know, the credit for being where they are, where they've truly achieved and where they've reached on their own, they don't give themselves the credit for being there. And so imposter syndrome kicks in. So I wanted to hear about that. And then I also wanted to ask you, you know, how much of it is actually like a, a syndrome, which sounds like a, an illness, and how much of it is, you know, the culture is really the one. When I was in women's studies in the 90s, they always said, it's not women who are sick. It's society that's sick. You know, it's not that we have to fix ourselves. It's that society really needs to fix itself. So I'm just interested in your perspective on that as well and the balance there. So I recognize that there is a societal influence in that. My experience personally with imposter syndrome and with my clients actually does not seem to have much gender relevance. My situation, I had a lot of confidence in my abilities until I suffered a back injury, which made it hard for me to support like I should and perform as easily as I had before. And I still had kind of that chip on my shoulder when I went to graduate school. And that set me up, that little like glitch in my confidence set me up to be in a situation where I was gaslit. Okay. Gaslit by whom? By someone who was my superior. Mm -hmm. And it was not a male. And I had never realized like that crisis of like constant comparison and feeling like I was a fraud before. So in my world, like having a crisis of confidence and having imposter syndrome are slightly different. I think that women have confidence problems that society definitely contributes to. My experience with imposter syndrome with myself and my clients is that it usually stems from something, some experience, specific experience that has happened. Because you can be fairly young, like you can be born and have situations where you're not confident. Like we see children who are shy and others who are not, but like to actually have imposter syndrome that has to be from something that has wounded you. It mm, made you okay, so it's it, almost like a trauma. Yes, it made you doubt 
your version of yourself made mm-hmm. you, you know, if you're in a situation where someone's trying to sell you an identity of yourself, if they're seeing you in a way that isn't true. Mm-hmm. And we hear about it in personal situations all the time. Being gaslit is is devastating, but it also happens professionally. And since it happened to me, I'm seeing how it happens more and more in the workplace and and particularly in the arts. Really? In the arts? So can you give us some examples of a gaslighting circumstance? It doesn't have to be a real life thing that happened to you, but you know, just so we can have an idea. Right. So an example would be in a professional situation is if you have a superior who, let's say they did not hire you, or if they did, they were pressured to, they did not want you there, and they do not see your potential. They do not allow you to get access to things that are going to further your career. They say things that allow you to peek into how they think of you. And it can be not near as overt as we hear about sometimes in when the gaslighting happens personally, like verbally, those types of things can be really overt where they're like, well, that's not good enough. You're, I don't know who you think you are, things like that. I think it's much more subtle in the work environment. But if you're sensitive to culture and you're picking up on these cues, that can be really devastating. I mean, what is the difference then between gaslighting and, you know, just someone indicating that they're not very confident in your abilities? Feeling unconfident or noticing a lack of confidence is different than feeling that you are a fraud. That if people find out who you really are, they're going to be disappointed in you. They're not going to respect you anymore. They're not going to give you opportunities. Is that imposter syndrome that you're describing? Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to understand the difference between, I guess, like gaslighting, because gaslighting is a different thing, right? Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Well, gaslighting is what happened to cause my instance of imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. several of my clients actually too. I had not realized that was even a thing. I found out about it later when I was dealing, going through the guilt and other emotions that one goes through when they've been gaslit. So... But imposter syndrome can come from other instances as well. If you're in situations that you're being compared to others around you in a negative light, even though you feel like you're an equal with those people. If you're in a situation of inequality for long enough, that can also create imposter syndrome because it's, but that's almost like a form of gaslighting as well, because they're trying to sell a different version of yourself. They're trying to, they're not seeing who you are. Right. And I mean, everything that the culture is based on probably has its roots in like a male-centric, Eurocentric base anyway. So what are the standards you're being measured by, I guess, plays into it. I'd like to hear a little bit about your three ways, because you, you mentioned there are three ways to beat imposter syndrome, and you have a piece that you've written on this that we'll, that we'll share with our audience as well so that they can take a look at it. But can you talk a little bit about those ways? One is recognizing how you've gotten to this point, because I think imposter syndrome has to do with a certain amount of trauma versus just feeling unconfident. And trauma can result from you know it, it, too much social media at a young age. And that comparison. But I think it's important f- to really 
get a handle on like stepping out of that and curing that to realize how it started. And sometimes that can be really hard to figure out on your own. You know, coaches and therapists can be helpful there. But that's definitely one of the steps is being able to recognize where those feelings of fraudulence started. Mm-hmm. And what and what would be the next step? So once you've you've kind of like put your finger on that on the beginnings of it, what's a step you can take to try to eliminate it? Then is learning to value your own journey because imposter syndrome comes a lot from the constant comparing and wondering what other people are thinking. And so being able to gain that confidence to be like, hey, you know, my journey is individual. Comparing myself with other people is just a waste of time because we're all on our own journeys. And my journey is fabulous. Yeah. And kind of learning to love yourself again, because there is a bit of self-love that's lost when you experience that type of trauma in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And another piece you've written about is five strategies to overcome your overwhelm. Yes. And I would love for you to take us through that a little bit. What is overwhelm? And what do you mean by overwhelm? I guess all of us have a lot going on, right? I mean, some of us are extremely busy. I think most of us are extremely busy as women. How do we know when it's actually overwhelming as opposed to just like life? The way life right? is. <laughs> yeah, because life is busy. I think when you stop losing that enjoyment of life, I mean, ideally, you should be in a job that you enjoy doing. And if you have so much work to do that you're not enjoying it anymore, that's a problem. And then that often leads to anxiety, a feeling of future, which is a future illness. You know, being able to feel anxious now is actually seeing things that need to be done in the future that feel overwhelming. Hmm. So anxiety is all about feeling like you're not able to control the future. Is that what you're saying? What are some ways we can get past this as women? Actually is, may have to do with mindset, which is always, you know, really individual. But again, if you have a a fear of missing out, you're going to be accepting more work than you could possibly physically do. And not saying no, because you don't want to miss out on those good opportunities that might be coming down the channel. Why why is it that we have this fear of missing out on things when people are asking us to to do things? Do you think women have a tendency to say yes to too many requests? Oh, absolutely. And a lot of that is societal. I mean, we're taught to be pleasant and not to make waves and to value opportunities and value other people's impression of us. So yes, at least it it was for me. You know, I grew up in a very uh, traditional patriarchal culture and I myself had problems saying no and setting boundaries. And that's also where women run into problems is, you know, how do you say no without feeling guilty, without feeling like you're supposed to be a servant to other people? Right. Is it okay to feel guilty? I mean, is it okay to just accept, okay, I'm going to feel guilty about this, but I'm just going to move on from it. I don't plan to feel guilty, but I I learned to accept a certain amount of it because what I learned through learning to set my own compassionate boundaries, boundaries that create connections as opposed to build bridges, what I learned is that there is a certain amount of guilt in the beginning. And it's like any other skill. Learning to build boundaries takes practice. And uh, you feel less and less guilty as you learn to value your own worth more and respect your time and energy more. And you get better at the skill setting and enforcing boundaries. 
Can do you have any examples that, that when someone you know or just uh, hypothetical situations? No, let's, let's use me because I really okay. was, I was the I was the worst the worst at setting boundaries and I would do gigs for free all the time. I would do gigs that left me feeling icky because hmm. I why did you feel icky? Because I felt I wasn't being valued because mm-hmm. people men who were less prepared than I was would be given better opportunities because they had friendship with the person in charge. Are you talking about like speaking engagements? No, I mean in the music world. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I had come with my ducks in a row with my parts prepared and, you know, not being seen for all the work and the talent that I was giving and, and being overlooked by someone else who just had a personal connection. So what's what would be your advice then to women or really to anybody who's experiencing this and who's feeling that they're not valued, but they're still saying yes to too many things. They're still feeling that pressure and they're um, still doing it. Well, f- download that worksheet because mm-hmm. that will give you like a little taste of what I do in my coaching. And mm-hmm. I am actually hoping to m- come out with a course that to be able to reach more people. Because coaching can be outside of your realm of expenses if you're pragmatic and women can be, you know, very pragmatic about what they spend their money on. And often that is not us. In fact, I had a a client who was like, well, I'm not going to spend that much money on myself because that could be like a new dress for my daughter. Right? But how much benefit would her daughter get out of seeing her mother with more confidence and ability to set boundaries and set an example for her? So in the process of creating this online course to be able to make it less expensive so that people can start that journey of learning to value themselves, learning to put those boundaries in place, deciding, like making conscious decisions about what their values are and what they want to put boundaries about instead of just figuring it out as you go and not recognizing your values and not being true to those and giving yourself, giving your energy and time to places that you don't want it to go just because you can't say no. Do you have any like practical advice about that? So let's say, for example, someone asks you to do something and it comes live. Like you, someone makes you this request to your face. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it could be easy to, to say no. It may be a little easier to say no in an email or something. Right. What do you do if, right. if you get a request? Say, can I think about that? Let, mm-hmm. let me think about that and I'll get back to you. Because should, should that be like our automatic response before we even, unless, unless we absolutely know we want to do it. Yeah. In the beginning. Like I said, like learning to set boundaries is a process. And so that's my best advice. If your gut reaction is to say yes to everything, (laughs) ask for time. And Mm -hmm. then after you ask for time, realize if you're not able to say no, put some type of stipulation in there. Like I only have this much time or I need to be done by this amount or I need to be paid this much. You know, figure out how you can limit it somehow. And even that, like if you're really bad at setting boundaries, like I was, even that's going to be uncomfortable at first. Mm-hmm. Like the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yes. Yes. And then you Your can build on that. valuable ladies. Yes. Protect it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, when you look at, 
if you're at the end of your life, what are you going to be regretting? What are you going to be wishing you had done more of? And I can almost guarantee it's going to be valuing your time and energy because at that point, you realize it. You realize the value of a human life and that you were the one that ultimately had control over where your time and energy goes. Oh, yeah. The old like deathbed (laughs) regret (laughs) scenario. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so true. Where can companies and individuals, because you're really a more broad life coach now, where can they get in touch with you to find out more and to to download your pieces of writing that you've done on these topics? DrNancyWilliams.com. That's DR without the period. And that'll take you to my homepage. And that has everything that I do as a musician and a life and leadership coach. And those guides are at the bottom of that first page. And I also do give complimentary sessions if we don't know each other, because it's that's such a big step to have a coach. And there's so much trust that you're giving to someone to help you. I mean, it's really personal. Even if you're having someone help you in a professional capability, like with your leadership skills, that ends up being a really personal relationship. And so I want people to be able to get to know me first and to be able to show them what they can achieve with through working with me and to make sure that we're a good fit. Well, Dr. Nancy Williams, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. And I knew you were going to come share all about imposter syndrome and, you know, and some of these concepts around overwhelm and how we can fight them. But I didn't know you were going to share all about your own experiences, having dealt with it. And I appreciate that so much for you to share your personal story and, and to really just tell us all about your career journey. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.